0: And that's normally a natural, like, demand and supply, like, you know, forward price mechanism, you know, more demand, less availability, you know, less liquid coins, less coins circulating because people are holding them in, in, in personal custody means that you have to pay a premium if you're like an ETF provider or somebody that's desperately in need of Bitcoin.
1: Your folks, and welcome to the Blockchain New Zealand podcast. I'm Jeff Nicey and today I'm speaking with Aditya Das. Didia is a crypto analyst and writer with a background in applied economics. He works with Brave New Coin and the Techemy Group analyzing macro trends in the crypto and wider markets. In this conversation, Didia and I cover the Bitcoin ETF and acting as a gateway for an Ethereum ETF. We look at the broader Ethereum scaling solutions such as protodank sharding and the layer two mechanisms. We talk about some of the broader trends happening for 2024 such as the upcoming Bitcoin halving the US elections and tokenization of real world assets, including stable coins. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Aditya Das. All right, Aditya, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, Yeah, it's an honor. I think we talked about me being a fan
0: uh, before coming on and it feels like, you know, a real special place for like the New Zealand blockchain
1: uh, community to come and be a part of. So yeah, I'm really happy to be here. I've got you as a writer or as an analyst, and you're associated with Brave New Coin. Perhaps you've been there a while. Perhaps you haven't. Maybe you can tell us how'd you get involved with all of this, uh, and what is Brave New Coin up to? Yeah, so I can start from the beginning. Uh,
0: my initial introduction to crypto was with a flatmate at university. At university, sorry, who used to buy and sell things on Silk Road. And um, yeah, he, he showed me what was going on with the Tor browser and, you know, this crazy marketplace where it seems like you'd like buy all this nefarious stuff. And I was a bit like, wow, you know, what is happening in the world and what, what is up with this technology? Um, and I kind of forgot about it. Uh, and then when I was in university doing my master's degree um, in economics, I came across a couple of models um, for how like crypto could be used to evade capital controls And I thought that was very interesting. Um, Yeah, I left university and, you know, was sort of doing some soul searching. I think economics research, uh, I wasn't cut out for it. And I sort of had like, (laughs) you know, grander visions for like making money and that sort of thing. Um, And I came across uh, this job application um, for a company called Brave New Coin, um, a crypto like research and data firm. And I thought it was very interesting. Uh, The task for the application was to write a story about the Lightning Network. And I think, yeah, from there I kind of fell in love with it. I thought it was, you know, a really powerful concept, you know, the potential to change the world. And that was like, yeah, my Eureka moment with crypto. Um, so you didn't know about the Lightning Network beforehand or? Um, no, but I didn't know about it. I, yeah, I didn't really know how Bitcoin worked until yeah. I applied for that job. Um, I had a very cursory understanding, like most people do, until they dive into Bitcoin about how it worked and what it was used for. Um, And yeah, you know, that was about six years ago. And I think this is not an uncommon experience for people in the space. Uh, Crypto kind of pulls you in a bunch of different directions, you know, whether it's trading, whether it's looking into the tech, uh, whether it's, you know, narratives and like venture style investing. Um, So yeah. You know, I'm broadly a writer and analyst at Brave New Coin, but I wear a few different hats in the crypto space. I'm a freelance writer as well. Um, I do analyst tasks for some of the funds that uh, Brave New Coin's parent company, Techamy, runs. Um, And I also assist with uh,
1: some deal flow operations, which is essentially helping um, crypto startups raise funds. Um, Just going back there a little bit, did you ever dig into Silk Road yourself? No, more after the fact. Um, Yeah, like looking
0: back on it, I think it is still a very interesting concept because you look at most um, marketplaces where you can buy things using crypto and it's priced in US dollars. But I'm yet to see something since the Silk Road where things are actually measured or or priced in Bitcoin. Right. uh, Where it's like, you know, Sats instead of like a conversion, which, uh, yeah, I still think is unique to Silk Road. I'm, I'm sure there are other you know, maybe darknet marketplaces that do the same thing. Uh, but I don't really haven't seen anything like that in mainstream.
1: Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, we, we might never see that again, right? With the maturation of Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the emergence of things like stable coins and yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's an obvious use case though, right? And like, um, I guess regardless of how you feel about Ross, right? Like he's still in prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, it,
0: it does feel a little bit like he was made an example of. Um, and yeah, you know it is you know like the guy who um, the academic publisher who you know got in trouble for publishing like academic research. Yeah. You know, it, it feels like the the U.S. government does not take kindly to that. Yeah, I, so. I agree.
1: And the, and they decide. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating story. The like how the FBI agents caught up with yeah. Tread Pirate Roberts. And uh, so I, I recommend you know as an entertainment. Um, I would recommend people uh, dig into it. But so I was in Canada at the time, and uh, things like marijuana is legal now in Canada. Yeah. yeah. But at the time, it wasn't, and so you know I also had people that were using Silk Road basically just to just to buy weed, and yeah, they were like, yeah, yeah. And the the Bitcoin was like a the crypto was a secondary part of it. Yeah. But the bit that the marketplace solved was that it was. Like a little bit safer because you just sent Bitcoin online and then you received whatever you were buying in the post. Yeah. And you didn't have to like go find someone, go meet them, you know, you didn't have to leave your house. Uh, And so, you know, it's kind of like uh, capitalizing on that Amazon type of efficiency. Yeah, I had a very similar experience. It kind of blew my mind how simple it was, how safe it was.
0: yeah, that the fact that a transaction like that could happen and you know, yeah, you avoided having to go into some you know dodgy person's car and drive around the <laughs> block if you wanted to.
1: Yeah. What um what type of economics did you study or what did you um you know major in, or what was the what was the focus of your graduate studies?
0: Yeah, so my so you know, at a master's level, you don't really dig too deep into specific elements of economics, it's still kind of broadly like Macro one, macro two, macro three, macro okay. four. Um, but my uh, thesis speciality was applied economics. So that involves taking an everyday problem and applying like an econometric or like an economic model to it. Um, so my thesis was on how efficient high-performance sports funding in New Zealand is. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I developed a model for that. Um, you know, tried to figure out uh, variables that affected the, you know, outcomes, which for me was, you know, meadows. And I had like a side model about whether like, okay. you know, sports funding should be directed towards high performance or whether it should be more generalist. So should things like road running be funded more prevalently than, you know, um, right, yeah, so... meadows sports, which don't have
1: high participation rates, like, I don't know, gymnastics or... Um, well, especially here in New Zealand, right? If you don't yeah. have a large culture, if you don't have a large baseline in terms of like the kids participating in programs, then we probably at the top top and don't have the same outcomes. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it all kind of changed with uh, the USSR,
0: China, and then the, the UK, Great Britain, having very successful, like, you know, high performance, like funding campaigns, and you're know, getting lots of medals at the Olympic Games, yep. which led to this outcome. Uh, which was, you know, national pride or, you know, uh, happier to be British, happier to be Chinese, you know, something to uh, shine on the global stage. Yeah. Um, and New Zealand has, you know, taken its high-performance sports funding, funding model from the UK, it seems like, and a similar sort of hoped outcome, which is, yeah, you know, national pride and lots of medals and, <laughs> you know, aspirational type of, yeah, outcomes. All right.
1: I mean, that, that seems, yeah, that's that seems nice and relevant. You haven't look back on that since though you're now let's say full time in crypto or in uh, in the finance side. Yeah, I'm deep in the rabbit hole yeah. for sure. I still do some some modeling every so often, but it's more like financial modeling these days. Okay. Um, so one of the hottest topics lately is the Bitcoin ETF. Yeah um, very broad question. you can you can answer this however you like. Uh, how is the ETF going? And uh, how do you see it, uh, you know, affecting markets, either crypto-specific or otherwise? Yeah, yeah. I think you know, good, bad, and ugly. I would say it's going that
0: way. Um, so, you know, twenty twenty-three. Uh, I think a lot of Bitcoin bulls and Bitcoin holders were very thankful for the ETF because it created a lot of like speculative price momentum. Um, you know, people saw names like BlackRock, the biggest asset fund manager in the world, Fidelity, the biggest four hundred one k provider in the world, like uh, applying for Bitcoin ETFs. And it was this real sort of validation moment. It was, you know, these big mainstream players um, exploring the idea of Bitcoin. Um, and yeah, people got very excited. Uh, you know, fast forward to the ETFs actually being launched. And what we have observed in, you know, the the, the weeks since it's been launched is heavy selling pressure, mainly yeah. because of one particular ETF, the grayscale, um, trust ETF. And uh, yeah, I, I actually, I wouldn't say this too much. I guess I combined the bad and the ugly there. But, um, and yeah, even then, I don't think there, there's more to that story than just like selling pressure because people are bearish. Um, but yeah, I think, and taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture, I think the ETF is a very positive um, step forward for Bitcoin Um, you know, infrastructure and systems and, you know, uh, expanded markets are always a good thing for an asset class. And yeah, the ETF lets more people, you know, gain exposure to Bitcoin. Um, The Spot ETF, which is different from this Futures ETF, which was released a couple of years ago, involves actual physical Bitcoin, not a derivatives contract. So again, the ETF providers that are selling, you know, shares of a fund of like paper Bitcoin to the general public actually have to buy physical Bitcoin um, to back up back up the the, the shares that are selling the ET, the paper Bitcoin that they're selling. Um and yeah, that means you know the BlackRocks of the world, the fidelities of the world, the ARK invests, you know, have to buy Bitcoin. They have to figure out how to custody Bitcoin. Yeah. Um so yeah, I think you know, even in terms of like information and education, you know, you're seeing Fidelity, you know, release like um, stuff on their social media to educate people on how Bitcoin works. Um, yeah, so I really think it's going to be uh, a stepping stone moment for um, the U.S. public and probably the global public because, yeah, you know, when ETFs uh, trade on like the NYC ARCA and these big exchanges, you know, global pension funds have access to them, um, we have, we have access here through yeah. Sharesies and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, you know, BlackRock has their iShares brand, which is, you know, if you've used Sharesies and you see the ETF, you might see iShares. And the iShares Bitcoin uh, product released by BlackRock has been incredibly successful. And yeah, it's probably because of that track record. And, yeah. you know, people see it like, you know, popping up on their apps and like, you know, Sharesies or the Robin Hoods of the world have this like, okay, this isn't like a weird sort of uh, fringe ETF, you know, the big players in the market are
1: backing it. Do you think people will be slightly put off by the fact that somebody else is buying and managing that Bitcoin for them and all you see is like that line item on your statement or in your app? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think
0: for a lot of us, you know, people who are semi-cryptocentric, an ETF really doesn't matter to us because, you know, buying and selling Bitcoin is quite straightforward. Um, you know, you can just sign up to a platform like Easy Crypto or an exchange and just, yeah, buy, buy Bitcoin very right. easily. Um, I think for one, like, sorry, taking a step back from that question is pension funds. So there are certain, you know, larger entities where actually custodying Bitcoin and managing digital wallets at scale is a little bit of a challenge. So um, Bitcoin trust products in the past have been quite popular for like large institutional funds, because it means they don't have to actually worry about like, you know, security, uh, managing the Bitcoin, like cold storage. So yeah, the pension
1: funds have access to it. So um, you mean that like an individual doesn't necessarily have their own pub key? Exactly, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and they can, I guess, uh, benefits of batch processing buy and selling volume. Yeah, yeah. At the individual level, you know, I, I can understand that perspective
0: where, you know, it's, I'm not in control of the, the Bitcoin, you know, it's just like a, a number change on the app. And, you know, I think at the individual level, um, <laughs> you're not to put, put thoughts into any uh, people's heads, but yeah, if you're comfortable, you know, buying Bitcoin yourself and managing yeah. the custody, you're probably better off than buying an ETF.
1: Yeah, I think, I, I think it's net positive, like you also said there. But to me, it, to me, it's so simple. Like you, you have this, you have this Bitcoin, and then it's like, well, can you spend it? And you're like, oh, actually, yeah. I can't. So, I mean, it, it it covers off the idea of Bitcoin as an easy investment. Yes, yeah, and it's good for price exposure.
0: Um, you know, Bitcoin these days has developed into kind of having two sort of value propositions. One is as you know, a store of value, um, something like almost a, like a share. I, you know, I'm just whatever broadly speaking here. Sure, sure. But uh, um, yeah, it's like something to the price goes up happy, you know, price goes down sad. Um, but for other people who like care about the technology, <laughs> hundreds the, of
1: hours of research. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's, yeah. What,
1: that's what we're left with.
0: <laughs> happy, um, sad. Yeah, exactly. And for some people, it's just that it's a it's an asymmetric bet. It's um, an asset that, you know, performs well, irrespective of What's going on in you know the wider economics of the world, um, but for other people, Bitcoin is about the tech. It's a you know decentralized money network of which we've never seen work so efficiently in the past. Um, you know, it's a way uh, for you know non-government, non-controlled currency to like actually exist efficiently. Um, in a lot of ways, it sort of fills the role that gold used to play for a lot of people as yep. like a hard asset you can like rely on when you know your everyday fiat money isn't working so well um we've seen it have traction in places like lebanon and argentina for those reasons but yeah there's another side of it which is the investor the trader side who is just like hey there's this asset i want exposure to i want price exposure to so an etf is you know good for that sort of individual somebody that doesn't care about actually spending the bitcoin and just wants the speculative
1: value Have you been tracking the flows, like the GBTC outflows compared to the new inflows? What are your thoughts there? Yeah. So going back
0: to the GBTC thing. So when that ETF launched, it was a little bit special because it arrived with all of this existing AUM. So there were already these assets under management because GBTC previously was not an ETF. It was a trust product that was only accessible to institutional investors. Um, And, you know, there are certain like ring fences for a product like that. So it's a closed marketplace. You can't just sell your shares to anybody whenever you want to. I think the way GBTC work is there was like redemption windows where you could swap your your Bitcoin trust shares for like actual Bitcoin. And those only came around like every so often. So, yeah, I think, you know, for holders, it was a little bit frustrating. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. been around.
1: And it's been around
0: around a long time. So a lot of people who held shares that were somewhat illiquid were, you know, just looking for an opportunity to sell them. Right. Um, This trust then gets converted into a full ETF, which, you know, is accessible to retail, you know, has a proper order book. Um, They were just like, you know, and Bitcoin had a very strong, you know, price period leading up to the um, ETF launching. So, yeah, it was like a natural selling opportunity for holders of this previously illiquid um, share to like, you know, sell it. So that's kind of what happened. Um, yeah, there was just sort of this like profit taking kind of moment and people who had GBTC, GBTC shares sold maybe not because they were sort of bearish about gun, but maybe because they were a little bit stuck with this illiquid yeah. asset and they were just wanted to recuperate some of it. Um, so that was the GBTC story, like with other, um, ETFs, like the BlackRock ETF and the Fidelity ETF, there was actually pretty decent inflows. Um, but yeah, because GBTC had such a large, um, AUM, as you said, it had been around for a long time. Um, yeah, it kind of overtook anything that was anything else that was happening around it. And yeah, net outflows were pretty much negative up until very recently, I think in the last week or so, they sort of flipped. Positive, um, because yeah, people are buying uh, BlackRock shares, or they're swapping their GBTC shares for right. shares in other
1: ETFs. Selling out for a lower fee option, maybe, or, or for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah exactly. And um, in terms of like uh, running the clock forward, uh, crystal ball gazing—is BlackRock yeah. going to take over uh, the coin? I don't think so. I don't think so. Is that just a fun story on the internet? (laughs) I think it's a fun story.
0: Um, You know, BlackRock is a company that has its hands in a number of different pots. And, you know, maybe if they wanted to, they they could take over Bitcoin. But, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, everybody loves a conspiracy theory. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I don't think they've indicated that that's their plan. I think, you know, this is just based on client demand and, you know, they're just going to go with the market and, you know, they have bigger fish to fry like uranium and whatever other you okay, know, okay. wars to fund and whatever else
1: BlackRock does. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe they have bigger crypto fish <laughs> on the way. What do you reckon about Ethereum taking the same path that Bitcoin has? Yeah, I think, I think it's inevitable. Um, one, because BlackRock has applied for um,
0: Ethereum spot ETF and they have an incredibly successful record. Um, I think the other thing to mention here is that uh, the SEC sort of has its hands tied behind its back. So that's the Securities Commission of the United States because of some really recent legal losses, particularly the loss it faced uh, in an XRP lawsuit where a judge sort of said, yeah, XRP wasn't an unregistered security sale. Um, you know, it doesn't pass the Howey test. So if XRP isn't considered a security in the U.S., then Ethereum probably isn't considered a security. So that you know means sort of free reign for yeah. ETF issuers to try and build e- ETFs out of it. Um, so yeah, with BlackRock applying for an ETF, a deadline set for May, which uh, the SEC has already delayed. And a delay is generally a sign that they're just trying to push the, the goalposts back and
1: don't really have a reason to reject. Um, so the Bitcoin one was just sort of delayed for years and years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so would they have the option of doing that, or based on these legal precedents, you think perhaps it'll go quicker?
0: Yeah, they, so what we've heard is that the final final deadline is May for this current round of applications. So that's like sort of the the month in the calendar that most people have marked for when an Ethereum spot ETF is. Um, but uh, yeah, I I, I think it, it's going to happen. I think. Yeah, now we have uh, ETF issuers actually, you know, filing lawsuits against the SEC for uh, wrongfully denying applications. So again, their hands are tied behind their back and they're losing cases. So they lost that case against the against XRP and then they lost another case against Grayscale.
1: Right. Um, so yeah, they're running out of excuses to not approve ETFs. And um, um, so let's talk about maybe a fundamental difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, Ethereum, the network, runs on yeah. this idea of staking and uh, stakers are directly or proportionally rewarded, you know, and this could be translated into uh, seeing the token Ether as like a yield-bearing asset Yeah, um, yeah. Com- compared to Bitcoin which isn't designed to do anything such as that. Uh, so would this change sort of the status between those two? It's It's a tricky one. It could be argued that way
0: but you know the actual way the technology works is staking staking serves a purpose um, towards the functioning of the network. It's not like interest. Um, So, you know, stakers who get this yield uh, for locking their Ethereum into the network are actually contributing to the security of the network. So, you know, it gives it like utility. So, yeah. So
1: the, the subtle difference there is that you're not just donating capital, but you're actually also participating in the network. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it may feel a little bit like yeah. you're
0: just, you know, whatever, depositing and receiving, yeah. but you are actually participating in the network and doing a task that, you know, serves a function for the network. So are we bullish Ethereum and Bitcoin? I would think so. And, yeah. you know, if you look at the correlation between the two assets, it's something like 0.89 or even and 0.89 the last year, I think even higher if you look historically. So yeah. they sort of move together Um, So what is it? it Bullish for Bitcoin is also bullish for Ethereum and yeah, maybe less
1: so vice versa, but yeah. Yeah, I find it hard mentally to separate the two in terms of performance like that. When you say like the correlation is 0.9, that's like in science, that's terrific. You're like, like, hooray, fireworks, let's get this published, right? But here it's like, it does seem when you zoom out to be in lockstep with each other.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And also, there's like functional reasons for that. Like, you know, when crypto first starts, I mean, there's a relatively new sort of marketplace for assets. Um, BTC used to be the, the the normal trading pay. It'd be like ETH BTC, XRP BTC. So when you were selling your BTC, you were normally selling it for ETH or XRP yeah. or another asset. And that's still the case. People often use their Bitcoin profits to buy into other assets. So you often see this pattern where Bitcoin will have a run. And what follows the Bitcoin run is an altcoin run. And when I say altcoin, that's everything apart <laughs> from Bitcoin.
1: If everything apart from Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, it's Bitcoin's the king, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, just on the Ethereum piece here, you recently published an article on Cointelegraph. Okay. Um, is that right, Coin Yes, Cointelegraph. Cointelegraph. Yeah, yeah, about some of the upcoming uh, upgrades in the Ethereum network, particularly about uh, sharding, dank yeah. sharding, proto-dank sharding. Uh, can you give us a a summary of what's going on. Like, is is this also something to watch out for in Ethereum or is this maybe only for like the technical nerds? This is definitely something to watch out for. It's, I mean, it's a staggered release,
0: which is why we have Proto Dank Sharding and Dank Sharding. So Proto Dank Sharding is gonna come first and there's an update uh, which has been delayed a few times, but I think they're hoping for it to happen in the first half of 2024, Um, but yeah. The reason of the fact that like every user is because it is designed to improve the scaling capabilities of Ethereum. Um, so yeah, this is something if you study you know, blockchain, you come across very quickly is the, the, the scaling trilemma. So it's very difficult in a decentralized network to scale without sacrificing decentralization or security. So you have to kind of commit to two out of the three or three out of the three if you're very lucky so ethereum has come out with a number of scaling strategies a lot of them involve um these things called layer twos which are like periphery networks that are connected to ethereum but you can offload transactions to. um so yeah just uh layer, layer twos nat- are,
1: are layer twos are hot right wasn't, layer wasn't twos that are extremely that hot like oh the the narrative like a year and a half ago was all, all layer ones two years ago now Alt layer ones, and now we're into layer twos, or is that kind of also a bit past? Layer twos are are definitely, definitely still blowing up. Yeah. Um,
0: And Ethereum has made it very clear that scaling Ethereum, it's not gonna happen on the base chain, it's gonna happen on layer twos. So networks like Optimism, Arbitrum, Metis, increasingly we're seeing like Ethereum and the Ethereum foundation like build solutions for the layer twos. It's almost like the layer twos are, you know, have become a part of the layer one like so going back to dank sharding that is a method for compressing the data that a layer two needs to send to the main chain so specifically rollups which is like a layer two solution that's very popular Um, dank sharding promises to you know optimize the number of times like the layer two communicates with the main chain and, you know, improve how quickly things verify, reduce the costs of the actual layer twos. So let's say, you know, optimism, maybe it's 50 cents for a basic transaction. They're saying we can get this down to like a cent. And, you know, the throughput might be like a thousand
1: transactions a second, where it's going to say, we're going to push it to like a million transactions per second. And this is going to be on the layer two, not on the base theorem. So, I mean, how how do you see this? Like in terms of... in terms of like even conflicts here, because you were scaling Ethereum with dank sharding and proto-dank sharding, yeah. or first proto-dank sharding, but then, and that's gonna benefit all the layer twos? Yes, right? or specifically the ones that use rollups, which are, I mean, Optimus and Arbitrum, which right. like
0: probably are 90% of the uh, layer two volume. So yeah, I mean, most of the. Uh,
1: and then the idea is that most of the transaction activity is gonna happen on the layer twos. Um, with increased throughput all the way to the base chain. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And are people like, is this a really big problem in Ethereum right now that we need more on base layer one Ethereum? Yeah. Yeah. There's there's, there's differing opinions.
0: I think there is one, there's the everyday user aspect. And, you know, I think a lot of like day-to-day users are like, Polygon's great. It's fast. It's cheap. Arbitrum's is Optimism's optimism is great, you know, it's fast, it's cheap, it's better than Ethereum. I don't have to wait uh you know 20 minutes and pay you know 10 bucks to buy an NFT on OpenCA right. and spend you know 50 cents and you know wait 30 seconds. Um yeah, there are some issues. So, like for example, the security model for layer two would be that anybody can dispute a transaction. So there's these things called uh fraud proof. So if I send a layer a transaction on a layer two to be verified by the layer one and you know i don't think that transaction is correct or have an issue with the transaction i can submit something on the layer two to say it doesn't work uh, and then the layer one will verify but what it turns out is not many users are actually um disputing transactions
1: okay
0: uh i think maybe in the last uh, there was an a, a report that came out probably you know, at the start of the year that said in the last eight months, two transactions were disputed. So we're not actually really leveraging layer one security that often. It's almost like you're operating on a separate chain because nobody is using that layer one yeah. uh, security model. Um, it's it's being verified by uh, the, the, the layer one, but it almost doesn't need to because most people are just very happy to use the layer two and not dispute the transactions. And it's not kind of trustless anymore because... Again sorry to take this like to keep going off into this, but optimism and arbitrum have their own separate consensus models which are normally delegated proof of stake which is kind of the antithesis of you know uh the sort of distributed proof of stake or the proof of work model that we expect from our layer 2s like a high level of decentralization the layer 2s have a much smaller level of decentralization but they make up for that by saying we communicate with the layer 1 we, periodically to ensure that our, um, you know, smaller, less decentralized um, consensus model can be trusted. But because so few people are disputing the transaction, it appears as though,
1: yeah, it's so like we arbitrary. More, we need more fraudsters out we, there <laughs> uh, attempting to attack the chain. Yeah. Like, yeah. do people just not care anymore? Like, if you're launching, if you're doing like an NFT project, right, and you're having people like lots of transactions and lots of volume through like minting or Whatever it is that you're doing, uh, you're we're just trusting arbiter and we're saying it's fine. Pick your layer two and go. Broadly, I would say my opinion is, yeah, I don't think people care too much. Yeah. I think
0: they care about speed and cheapness a lot more. Um, and that's the same kind of thing we saw in Web2. People would use Google Docs or free applications, even if it means like sacrificing uh, you know, privacy or security at times. Yeah uh i think that's the bottom line
1: DeFi, you you want to use uniswap v3 without even caring about why it's better than v2 you're just like all right Uh, yeah yeah uh, it's like a shiny coat of paint more than anything sometimes yeah i mean the the delegated proof of stake piece is interesting too because that that scale of decentralization is sliding in the other direction isn't it yeah 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 and it kind of defeats the purpose of you
0: know, why even have Ethereum anymore if, you know, um, what we care about with specifically our decentralized applications is, you know, speed and cheap transactions. You know, for, you know, gaming, uh, blockchain games, right? Where there's this frequent, there's this frequently microtransactions. Yep. You're constantly having to sign things. Um, layer twos or blockchains with, you know, uh, expedited consensus do become a lot more useful. You know, Ronin, Axie Infinity's chain, is is getting games, like it's pulling in games because people want that fast, you know, specifically designed for application type of consensus, which sacrifices decentralization and potentially security. Like it's much more difficult to stop a rogue node in decentralized proof of
1: stake than it is in proof of work. Yeah. In In the realm of gaming where, yeah, you could have, where you have this need for... Uh, you know writing the state update very very frequently yeah. you know maybe it doesn't matter as much the security the security bit right and you see this in web2 gaming as well where occasionally there's like leaks or people figure out little hacks to like boost their performance or reduce others but it's just affecting that game yeah at yeah. that time and although on the other hand Axie infinity had the massive famous hack
0: yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, I think that was like a spearfishing phishing uh, yeah. thing. So you can't human error, for example. And then again, you know, that's
1: another big <laughs> topic, which kind of ties into the whole proof of work. and um, Zooming out to some macro events, mm-hmm. 2024 is already has hyped to be a huge year in, in crypto. Mm-hmm. We've got the ETF approved for Bitcoin, maybe Ethereum coming up. Um, we have also expected April 11th uh, Bitcoin halving. Yeah, uh, that's according to the nice hash countdown, which I just checked, uh, where the coin issuance issuance is going to get cut in half. Um, what are you seeing? Anything different this time around about the halving? Yeah, you know, actually, to be honest, kind of similar patterns
0: than we've seen in the past, which is a good thing, actually. Um, you know, just just looking specifically at price, there seems to be this almost like you know clock like cycle where you know every time you know leading into and post halving we have these similar sort of price cycles um and that normally leads to like new all-time highs probably like i think you know in the six to 12 month range post halving once it's sort of set in and this new sort of mining paradigm where like miners getting half the reward that they did before sort of sets in um so, yeah, some of the patterns we're seeing leading into this halving is coins being moved off exchanges into personal custody, which suggests that people are like digging their heels in, their hands are becoming stronger, they're less willing to sell. And that has had like natural implications to the price in 2023. Like 2023 was a good price year. And that is definitely because people are willing uh, to sell less, even when there is a bearish news event. Because they have this thing in the horizon, right. which is the halving, so it's almost like okay, you know, whatever. Maybe there's some new regulation that's making it tougher for Bitcoin companies to exist, but because we've got the halving,
1: and that is almost inevitably, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, well, yeah, so- less than a year out, it's easier to look ahead and be like, well, I might as well just hang around to see if this time's going to be different. Or yeah. just to see what happens, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. I think that in terms of the ETF, um, the bullish narrative within me, right, it thinks that uh, these ETF providers are going to be su- surprised when the halving hits based on the amount of available coins on exchange. And then, you know, people that are used to just buying and selling through their app or through their brokerage, um, people that are used to doing that very easily and cheaply are also going to be surprised. It's going be like, it's going to be harder to get your hands on some Bitcoin. True. And that's normally a natural like demand and supply, like, you know,
0: forward price mechanism, you know, more demand, less availability, you know, less liquid coins, less coins circulating because people are holding them in, in, in personal custody means that you have to pay a premium if you're like an ETF provider or somebody that's desperately in need of Bitcoin. Um, another interesting pattern is miners as well. Like you see hash rate sort of rising um, and miners engaging quite heavily in the network, they're mining more because one, they get a higher reward um, now versus like April 11 when the the reward gets cut in half. Um, And also, yeah, because of this, you know, self-fulfilling price prophecy, they're like, okay, uh, we may be like operating at a slight loss at the minute, you know, hash rate is rising. Um, You know, it's very competitive mining at the minute, However, we've got you know this, this natural yeah. bullish event coming up. So, what, so how we're do willing you see, to
1: operate at a loss a little bit more. How than, do you see that? So you're talking about more, you, you said that we can mine more. How, how does that work? How can, how can you mine more? How can miners sort of like go all in now uh, compared to what's going to go on after the Havoc? Uh, yeah, so
0: I think the reward at the minute is 6.25, yep. and then it's going to go to 3.725. 3.125. 3.125, yeah. sorry. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that means that for each block that you mine, your reward goes down from yeah. you know that number to that number. Um, so, you know, unless the price of Bitcoin is, you know, much higher, then you're obviously going to be earning more Bitcoin now than you would post the halving. Right. So, so
1: you want to get as much Bitcoin now because your block reward is gonna well, you know what the reward's gonna be, but you also know that what's the analogy here or what's the parallel that like your your revenue is gonna get cut in half. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And there's no. this I mean that's that's really unique, right? For for Bitcoin because in other industries you can kind of like predict maybe seasonal okay. variations and stuff, but you don't know when things are gonna get halved. Exactly. Yeah. This this it's like, you know, it's no it's like for a farmer knowing that there's gonna be
0: a storm coming you know, eight months from now, like on a specific yeah. date, on a,
1: you know, particular time, like to the second. Um, I like that. That might work pretty well. A farmer knows a storm is coming. So you got to get those crops out and in. Yeah. Yeah. and like, you know, you
0: know, it happens post the last having too, where smaller miners will exit the ecosystem after, and it's only really the big mining pools that have the scale to be efficient. So like now for like smaller uh, miners or individual miners, it's like a real like make or break moment. They're like, okay, how much money are we making now? Are we going to be able to like continue operating yeah. post halving once the reward is slashed? You know what's it going to look like? Um, should we shut off our machines? Should we sell our hardware? So kind of this is almost like a chaotic period um, yeah. in the mining ecosystem.
1: Lots to look ahead to uh, on that one. Uh, yeah, sorry, just one
0: more thing to mention. Another reason Hash has been good is because transaction fees have been rising because of the ordinals boom. Right. So there's been this new technology, you know, sort of. Not to get too technical or go into it because I don't know <laughs> heaps about it either. Okay. But like people have figured out a way to issue NFTs inscribed onto SATs on the Bitcoin network. Okay. And this has led to this new use case. Everybody loves NFTs. Um, and people have figured out that you can have NFTs on Bitcoin the same way you do in Ethereum. It's a good sort of tribe signaling community, like you know, a way to tell the world, you know, which chain you back and there's been a real boom and that's boosted transactions on the network and that's led to more transaction fees, which has
1: also been good for miners. Right. So fees go up. So miners then earn more revenue. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And uh, fees, yeah, they've been holding high for a while now, I do believe. Yeah. I mean, Ordinals, I think the technology is developing quite well as
0: well. Like people are figuring out, you know, that there's, other images or more complex images that can be converted into ordinals and um, people are, you know, understanding Taproot, which yeah. is the technology that kind of drives um, ordinals a little
1: bit better. And yeah, it's just sort of developers are exploring. Coming up a little bit later this year, we've got an election in the U.S. Uh, what What's the macro outlook there? Yeah. Yeah. So the U.S. economy, because of, you know, the
0: prevalence of the U.S. dollar in like pretty much every trading market, it's like the world's reserve currency. Um, what happens in the U.S. kind of affects the rest of the world. Um, you know, everybody looks after Federal Reserve announcements. Uh, the U.S. interest rate is probably one of the biggest determinants of the price of Bitcoin and the U.S. inflation rate. I
1: thought it was just Bitcoiners that <laughs> followed all, all of that stuff.
0: Uh, other asset classes, too, yeah. Um, surprisingly. Um, but, yeah, so... It seems like whoever wins the election, and it looks like it's going to be a race between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, will have different perspectives on how the U.S. central bank, the Federal Reserve, should function and who should be running it, and whether it should be dovish or hawkish. Um, currently, the chairman of the Federal Reserve is a guy named Jerome Powell, who, depending on who you speak to, has either done a pretty decent job, you know, tempering you know market expectations and you know, kind of has sort of seems to be pushing the U.S. economy towards a soft landing. But other people like think he's too conservative and he's part of the establishment. Um, And Donald Trump has said uh, that he will remove him uh, from his position in the Federal Reserve. And expectations would be for him to put in somebody who's a little bit more expansionary, a little bit more ambitious, a little bit more, you know, let's make GDP grow a little bit more, let's lower interest rates. Um, let's, you know, uh, pump some money into the economy. And that would probably be good for Bitcoin and stocks and shares and investment
1: asset classes. Just if people have more money or easier access to money. um, Definitely good for small businesses, good for startups, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So,
0: you know, companies, the tech space, uh, it would feel like a sort of, a Republican win or something a little bit more sort of business friendly would be, yeah, good for price. And that would probably, you know, looking apart from the social implications, yeah, a Trump win might would, you know, broadly, I think, be good for the price
1: of Bitcoin and um, like a less conservative leader, perhaps. Right. Um, Powell was just on 60 Minutes. Yeah. And, uh... Interviewer asked him, you know, are you gonna to get to two percent? And he said the target is two percent, but essentially two percent in the long term.
0: Yeah, not the yeah. short,
1: not not the short term. So do you think that's Powell uh responding to this climate where people are kind of over the tightening phase? Yeah, yeah.
0: I I think that maybe it I think people were a little bit frustrated with him. And um, you know, central banks all over the Western world have this pressure to lower interest rates. You know, you're seeing it here in New Zealand too you know, people with mortgages are, are hurting from it. And, you know, lots of people are hurting from the high interest rates. Um, and, you know, when people see the U.S. economy doing as well as it is, there's like this natural pressure and that's fueling some of the, the things that Trumps are saying, that Trump is saying and some of the things Republicans are saying. Um, so, yeah, maybe that's, you know, kind of nudging Powell to be a little bit more, yeah, let inflation run, Uh, Let GDP run, let employment, you know, run. This economy doesn't need cooling off. We need to go back to heating it up. Um,
1: And uh, in terms of, you also have a piece uh, in terms of investment, which you mentioned at the beginning, in terms of, um, you can correct me here, in terms of like either evaluating investments or directing uh, investments. So what's, in terms of crypto investment space, right? we We have seen like, Short-term lows in what twenty twenty-three, mm-hmm. um, and has that been loosening up? How are we seeing more, operate more more ideas getting funded? Without a doubt, more ideas getting funded. Yeah, uh, I think broadly that is
0: to do with you know something we just mentioned, which is risk appetite returning. Um, you know, during the pandemic years and uh, the years like sort of after the pandemic, you know, we've seen a little bit more of a safety-first approach from investors. You know, interest rates have been high, um, a leaning towards saving, you know, smaller returns for like funds or VCs. And yeah, it feels like the aggression is back. People are ready to make money the way they used to pre-pandemic. And that means, you know, bets on technology, bets on um, emerging technologies, which potentially can offer high returns. You know, within the crypto space, we're seeing... Uh, startups, you know, in the layer two space, in blockchain gaming, in uh, real world assets, AI and blockchain uh, tokens and projects are, you know, another kind of hot button, exciting thing. Um, you know, there's also very specific crypto technologies for like the real ETH heads. There's this thing called liquidity restaking, and the Eigen layer, okay. which is getting a lot of buzz on Twitter. Uh, it's you know offering some very bigger yields on staked ether and people are very excited about that. So yeah, it feels like um, Things are heating up. BitBM is another one. I think they had a token sale recently that you know Was oversubscribed and, and made a bunch of money for um, early
1: investors um, What so- about are you seeing anything hyper local here in New Zealand that uh, Has your eye or you want to bring up and mention? I
0: uh, You know, I've seen a couple of uh, local startups, there's one called Ramblox, which I believe is a uh, crypto uh, bot sort of um, analytics tool to like help you sort of build trading strategies um, using historical data uh, and trading bots. Yeah, it's one of those things which is very unique to crypto, I think, because a lot of crypto exchanges like allow for API trading at a very like base level. You can automate your trades and, you know, bots and um, anything that can automate trading is, is quite, I think, quite useful right. for me personally and, you know, for, for anybody who likes trading crypto. Um, yeah. But I, I, one thing that does make crypto unique is, you know, the the, the APIs and the access the exchanges give to you. Um, yeah. I don't know if, like, you know, in traditional asset classes, you can, you know, get full order book data if you requested yeah. or, you know, take data. Um, in an API form, and that can be quite useful for building trading strategies. And you know, means you can have these ex like, startups that use this like accessible data in interesting ways. Um, another one, you know, that is, of you know, it's a Takami Group company um, yep. called Stable. So a little bit close to home, um, and that is a stable coin exchange and um, yeah, a stable asset exchange built. Uh, on permissionless DeFi. Um, so yeah, stablecoins are com- digitized, tokenized versions of real-world fiat currencies like the US dollar. I think you know, people will be quite aware of Tether and some of the big USD stablecoins. Right. But there is an emerging marketplace for non-USD stablecoins. Um, and I think it is an incredibly untapped market. You know, um, Digitized, tokenized version of the New Zealand dollar, Uh, tokenized versions of the Singapore dollar. Um, You know, Forex is a vibrant, active marketplace, but it also has restrictions in terms of, you know, who can access it because of jurisdictional um, barriers, problems, you know, kind of buying currency. Um, So, you know, one of the advantages of the blockchain is it equalizes, it digitizes, it facilitates uh, ring-fenced Markets and you know opens them up. So you know, digitized forex, stablecoin forex is something that you know has never even really been done before. And stable offers like a forex style trading experience, but with stablecoins and without some of the
1: sort of barriers you might see from a traditional forex exchange. Is this like a like an app, or is this a protocol, a it's bunch of smart app. contracts? It's oh. like how decentralized are we talking? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of smart contracts.
0: Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, you know, similar to something like Uniswap. It's yep. an AMM, I'm an automated market maker. So yeah, there's no order book.
1: It's on buyers and sellers. Is this live yet? Uh, it is not live yet, but we're, we're prepping for the launch. So prepping for the launch. All right. Look soon. at, look out for that, depending mm-hmm. on when this comes out. The, the website is live and you can get information on it. Okay. Um, but yeah, the actual like trading. Where does uh, in terms in terms of this, it might not fit in. But where do the New Zealand stables fit in? There's two, to my knowledge. We have Easy Crypto has one, and then uh, Techami Group also launched one a while back. Yeah, so uh, you know, it's
0: it's it's an open protocol, um, and like you know, similar to Uniswap, uh, any stable coin can you know create their own pool, or it doesn't even have to be the stable coin issuer itself. A community member can also create a pool if they want to. If there is a holder of either of the New Zealand dollar stablecoins, they can just create a pool, put in some USDC, put in some of the New Zealand dollar stablecoin, whichever one they choose, and they can um, create a marketplace for it. That's the way AMMs work. Uh, The platform will launch with Techamise stablecoin. We have liquidity providers uh, ready and who have you know, said that they want to create pools for NZDs. And yeah, uh, we're hoping for a very vibrant ecosystem where you can swap out NZDs for USDC or the Japanese Yen stablecoin, yeah. Lira stablecoin, a bunch of other stablecoins. And, you know, stablecoins are interesting also because um, you need ways to convert it into actual fiat currencies and stuff like that. And sometimes like, that's one of the advantages of a stablecoin exchange is like liquid liquidizing them so that um, you know, if you have like a Lira stablecoin holder and there's some issue with trying to, you know, swap your Lira stablecoin for actual Liras, you can use other yeah. stable
1: coins as a way to sort of well, there's not gonna be as many uh, Fijian dollars as there are Australian dollars or whatever it is. Though. Exactly. And that's one of the other reasons stable was created is to create like
0: liquidity solutions for you know these smaller stable coins. Um, and
1: often it's very difficult for smaller stablecoins to get onto big exchanges, and yeah, create okay. off ramps and on ramps. Uh, real world assets RWA you mentioned in passing a few minutes back. Yeah, uh, is this is this all hype or uh, something to look out for? I think it is something to look out for. Um, you know,
0: I am naturally like a pragmatist, and I am quite conservative compared to other people in crypto. Um, so yeah, the most successful version of an RDA is all around us already, the, the USD stablecoin. The US dollar is a real world asset and when it got tokenized, people got very excited. Yeah. Like somebody in you know, Porter, Peru or somewhere like that could have sort of the equivalent of a US dollar bank account. Like, and through DeFi and platforms like Curve, you can actually earn an interest rate. And having a USD bank account that earns pretty good interest is quite a powerful thing for a non-US citizen. Um, so that's where I would stand with real-world assets. Like, is there a necessity for this particular real-world asset to be tokenized? Like, is the real-world asset, like, or the real asset, Does are there inefficiencies there? So, you know, tokenized debt, for example, has become one of the biggest uh, use cases for real-world assets after stablecoins, because startups um, have trouble with funding. So we're seeing these platforms where you you can have a a microfinance project in Africa on platforms like Goldfinch and, you know, in the local markets, they can't really find investors. But once they create a tokenized version um, of debt, of their debt, they can, you know, sell to the whole DeFi ecosystem and, you know, access funding from different areas. So... You know, funding, for example, is one area where crypto and the blockchain space does very well. You know, smaller projects, startups sometimes use the the token or the ICO model
1: yeah
0: to to raise funds where they couldn't go through VCs because of a number of different reasons. Whether that's jurisdictions, whether that's a lack of networks, um, and tokenization is quite useful there. So that's where I would stand with real world assets, like you know, as opposed to like. You know, should we be tokenized? And it's not about can we tokenize real estate or silver or whether it's it's like stocks. more about should we stocks. So, yeah, or stocks. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean stocks is an interesting one because I do think like the stock market like works quite well. Like, you know, most people trading stocks aren't like, oh, I wish this was tokenized.
1: Yeah. You know, that's so I I mean those two use cases, right? It's it's kind of backwards, right? Because stable coins have been around for a long time and I think have proven their value. Um, and then the other one you mentioned about tokenized debt or like fundraising, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you mentioned, crypto is very good at this. And despite despite the ICO boom sort of like running away with heaps of money and like uh, a, a lot of projects going to zero, despite that, I think that the idea of the ICO is a brilliant way uh, to, raise, to raise funds. But this is already happening only now, 2023, 2024, we got this new buzzword, real world assets. <laughs> I think that's yeah, it's it's interesting to have this
0: conversation because yeah, I mean, they've existed for a long time. You know, people are very aware of it, but it's just like, you know, um we we're calling them real world assets now, and you have real world asset platforms. And when you write your pitch decks, you you know, have the world real world asset like mentioned a bunch <laughs> of times. So and it's all like right, you know, it's right. it's interesting. Like um I've spoken to a lot of projects that don't want to use the word NFT anymore, you yeah. know, digital collectible or uh Asset backed token or, or some other term that is for all intents and purposes an NFT, but because of you know, so many people were burnt by NFTs that you know deteriorate in value and are with you know, two percent of what they used to be, people don't want to buy NFTs, they want to buy art backed
1: assets or yeah, whatever. There's more real world assets there, <laughs> yeah, probably. I guess you could call tokenized art, which we have we have seen before, though maybe there's a lot more coming yeah um to finish us up today i've got some rapid fire questions for you uh what's your favorite chain that few people are talking about good question
0: um or or what do you
1: got your eye on maybe just off to the side you know
0: so yeah i think actually i don't know if it's a chain but more of a a layer too but the eigen layer okay uh kelp dao is a real interesting project um and The way the eigenlayer works is it's a liquidity layer for layer twos and, you know, uh, like gaming applications or DeFi applications built on layer twos so that they can access like staked Ethereum for, you know, security purposes. So yeah, I think that's a very interesting paradigm. And uh, yeah, and I I actually think a layer two, again, I don't know too much about the technology, but Metis is very interesting to me.
1: It seems like it's growing in popularity. and you mentioned liquid staking before. Is that what you said? Liqu- liquidity restaking. Liquidity restaking uh, is. Are we are we starting to like get into dangerous territory here, in terms of um, rehypothecating capital? Potentially, yeah. potentially, but it goes back to the conversation we had earlier about.
0: Ethereum, whether it's you know a security or whether it's like an investment scheme, there is a purpose to liquidity restaking. Yes, it may be pitched as, "Hey, your staked ether, which is already earning four percent, we could rehypothecate it and put it onto the liquidity restaking layer that you're also earning twelve percent on top of the four um, percent."
1: But yeah, there is like an element of technology behind it. But yeah, yeah for the DeFi degen, this is okay, okay. yeah yeah <laughs> at your own risk. Um, at your own risk. Do we see 100K Bitcoin this year? Yes. All right. Yes, yes. I think um, we're getting new all-time highs this year. Maybe around 100K. Last one I asked all the guests. Who is Satoshi? Uh,
0: it doesn't matter, to be honest. Um, Yeah, I, 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 the first thought that came to my head is a collective of people. Um. Yeah, I think, honestly, if I was to, you know, place bets... I would say it was a, collector, yep. a collection of cypherpunks who got together and uh, yeah, they needed a nameless founder that could be, you know, symbolize something about, you know, see the pseudonymity and not wanting to take profits. And um, yeah, I think Satoshi
1: is an idea and not a person. Great. Didi, thank you very much for coming in today. Uh, thank you for having me, Jeff. This yeah, it's has been congr- really fun. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for joining us, folks. Look out for the next episode of the Blockchain New Zealand podcast probably in the same spot you found this one. Cheers.